Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. I'm Julie Sedenko. I'm here with relationship expert, Leslie Vernick. And we just want to take a quick moment to thank you, our listeners, for being here with us, subscribing and sharing this podcast and all of the positive comments you've made since we launched in June. Yeah, Julie, I've just been amazed at the amount of comments and just the subscribers and the downloads. And we're so glad that women and men and leaders, pastors and counselors are listening to the podcast because we really want to give true biblical wisdom within the context of real relationship problems. And so we're thankful for you uh, for listening. Yes, absolutely. So let's get on with it. Today, we're going to talk about forgiveness. It's a huge part of the Christian life, of course, beginning with God's forgiveness and payment of our own sin. And the Bible talks so much about forgiveness. He commands it. Unfortunately, as you know, Leslie, these verses about forgiveness can easily become a weapon inside of a destructive marriage and can leave a Christian feeling confused and even forced to continue submitting to abuse. You know, and it's not just the destructive spouse who may weaponize that, or it may not even be in a destructive marriage. We see all kinds of reports coming out today in the news about Christian leaders who have misused their power over parishioners or students and had sexually inappropriate contact, relationships with them, and the victims who come out and, you know, disclose that they've been a victim of a pastor in leadership or a church person who has abused them, even they're told, well, you just need to forgive, you know, that somehow an offense that has been done to us, we should not hold anyone accountable, that forgiveness erases consequences and erases the opportunity to talk about the impact that this person has caused us. And that absolutely is not true. I remember I had a lay pastor in my church and he, it's, it's a great church and he was a good man, but no matter what was happening in my relationship and some of it was pretty bad. He would just respond. We just forgive, just forgive, just forgive. And I was really like, well, I guess that's true because it's biblical advice, but it felt very off. Was it off? Was it wrong? How do people deal with that? Well, the Bible does say to forgive. Well, it does say to forgive, but that's not all the Bible says. And it's sort of like trying to play a piano piece on one note. You know, I know middle C, I know middle C. So that's the only note I play. And I call that a composition. It's not a composition. It's just playing middle C. And it's true. There is middle C in the piano, but that's not the only note. And that's not the only way to play. And so I think it's really important that we look at the character of God, the counsel of God, Um, and the context in which some of these verses are written and other examples where that might be contradicted. And I think the first thing that we need to do is define what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. Because I think when your pastor says, just forgive, and if you're hearing this on this podcast, I would encourage you to ask your pastor, what does that mean? What does that look like to you? If I forgive my husband for you know, spending all the money in the bank account, if I forgive my husband for hitting me, if I forgive my husband for cheating on me for the third time, if I forgive, you know, the person who sexually abused me in my past, what does that look like biblically? Because I think that sometimes it might be the right answer. 
it looks like canceling a debt. So you don't have to carry that burden of bitterness on your shoulders anymore. But I think what they're really saying or meaning is, well, if you forgive them, then you won't talk about it anymore. And there won't be any record of what happened anymore. And you just continue on like everything's fine. And that is not biblical. That isn't even living in reality or truth. That's not even possible. Jesus didn't do that. And so I think it's really important that we understand that forgiveness doesn't mean getting out of jail free card, that you give someone a get out of jail free card. That's not what forgiveness means biblically, that you can continue to sin against me over and over again. And 70 times seven, I will forgive you and still be in a relationship with you and still trust you and not have you experience the consequences of your sin, because I will forgive you and cover that over. I think so many people, Leslie, do cite that verse, forgive 70 times seven, as that is what you're supposed to do. So yeah, if he sins against you, you have to just keep forgiving 70 times seven. How do you reconcile what you're saying with that verse? Well, first of all, you don't have to do anything. God doesn't make us do anything. God Hmm. tells us this is the way walk in it, but we don't have to. And so when Christians tell other Christians that you have to do this, they're really not having the heart of God because he didn't even tell Adam and Eve, you have to obey me. He said, don't eat this fruit from this tree or you will surely die. And he gave Adam and Eve the choice of whether they were going to listen to him or not listen to him. Right. And when they chose not to listen to him, God forgave them, but he still experienced consequences. Adam and Eve still experienced consequences of their bad choice. So if love keeps no record of wrongs, if love just erases the slate and there is no memory of anything that went wrong, why wouldn't Adam and Eve have been able to stay in the garden? See, there are consequences even when there's forgiveness. And so the 70 times seven is implied to mean that. If you're in a relationship with someone who continues to sin against you over and over and over again, 70 times seven, at least my experience in destructive relationships, marriage or family means you still have to stay in relationship with this person over and over and over again, no matter what they do. And that's not true because other biblical teaching doesn't validate that, doesn't show that. Hmm. For example, if we think about the cross, in the example of Jesus forgiving us. I mean, he forgave us before we even sinned, before we were even born. Jesus forgave us. Forgiveness was done on the cross. Forgiveness is there. We have it. So God so loved the world, it says in John 3.16, that he gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God loves everyone. He forgives everyone, but he doesn't reconcile with everyone right? He doesn't have a relationship with everyone. Why not? Because he says in that very same chapter in John 3, 36, that he who has the son has life and he who does not have the son does not have life. So even though God offers forgiveness to everyone, if we don't receive that forgiveness and repent, we don't have a relationship with that person. That's more of the biblical example. God doesn't have a relationship with everyone especially unrepentant sinners. So why would we be required to have relationship with people who continue to sin against us when God himself doesn't? It's a lot to think about. I hear this a lot with the women that we work with. Their husband will say, quit talking about that. That happened in the past. 
and maybe they've dealt with it in counseling or whatever, and there's been forgiveness, or maybe there hasn't, there is a time for putting things in the past, isn't there? And when is that? When are you not supposed to talk about it anymore? Mm -hmm. I think there's a place for putting the past in the past when it's not a repetitive pattern, for one thing, because sometimes you put the past in the past, like, okay, I forgave you for cheating on me, or I forgave you for lying to me, or I forgave you for spending too much money and not telling me about it. But now here we are again, this is happening again. So the past is now becoming the present. And the present repeats the past. And I need to talk about this because obviously you didn't get how this impacted me in the past or you wouldn't keep repeating it in the present. And so I think that's a big red flag. So when the past is truly the past and someone has truly repented and the behaviors have changed, I think that there's a time to let the offense itself go, that we don't talk about the offense. And I'm going to give an example. I used it in my book, The Emotionally Destructive Marriage, but I had a client whose husband had road rage. And in a road rage episode, he crashed the car and he caused a, a serious injury to his wife. Mm. And the uh, injury didn't go away. It was a permanent injury to her, her hip and she couldn't walk right. And she had pain in her hip. So he stopped road raging. He was repentant. But if he started to drive a little fast, in stormy weather, she would get anxious. And she would say, you know, I'm getting anxious because you slow down. And he said, okay, I know you're scared and I don't want you to feel scared in the car with me ever again. Or she would complain about her hip hurting. And he would say, I am so sorry that happened to you. So she had forgiven him, but she still brought up things about the offense's impact on her. And as she brought those things up, her husband didn't shame her and say, why do you keep bringing this up? I'm driving safe now. Or why do you keep complaining about your hip? Don't you know I'm sorry? I thought you forgave me. Sometimes there's still impact on someone's sin on our body, soul, or spirit. Like, I still don't trust you. I forgive you, but I still don't trust you. Does that matter to you? How are we working to rebuild our broken trust? I don't trust your driving. I don't trust my safety with you sometimes. And so there's tremendous impact on the victim of sin. And if the person who sinned expects to never have to deal with the impact on another person of their sin, they're living in la-la land. And if you still want to have a relationship with this person, you must care about the impact and talk about it until she doesn't need to, or he doesn't need to talk about that anymore. It's hard for the person who sinned to be reminded of their sin, isn't it? Of course it is, because we feel if we're a human, normal person, we feel bad about what we did. We feel ashamed about what we did. And so it is important if we truly have forgiven someone and we understand that we're a sinner too, and we're not judging them, like, how could you have done such a thing? Well, they did such a thing because we're capable of doing icky things and terrible things too. And so we understand that. But it doesn't mean that we still aren't grieving over the impact, right? Or we still aren't struggling with the impact of their sin on us. I remember working with a family where the woman had bipolar illness and in her bipolar mania, she started gambling on the, on the stock market and she lost quite a bit of their family money. Oh, no. And her husband forgave her for stopping her medication and 
getting into an episode and not telling what she was doing, all that kind of stuff. But the impact on their family financially was devastating. Mm. And it took years to recover. And anytime she would start to get the slightest bit excited about anything, it would remind him of that manic episode. And he would be like, you know, are you going to the doctor? And have you talked to your doctor? And are you taking your medication? And he would be anxious over that because he didn't want to go through another episode like that where she lost her judgment and caused the family harm. And so I think we need to understand that when someone seriously sins against us and we're in relationship, a family relationship with that person, we can extend forgiveness. And we ought to if we're true believers. But that doesn't mean we can continue to be in a relationship with that person if they're not repentant or we can't trust them or we don't feel safe with them. I think there's also biblical reason to distance ourselves from people who are unrepentant, even if we have forgiven them. And I think that's where the misunderstanding comes, Julie, is where the church bundles the whole package. If you forgive, that means you need to erase the consequences. That means you need to um, restore the relationship. That means you need to trust again with no strings attached. And that's just not possible for human beings to do. And God isn't requiring human beings to do that. You've also taught that forgetting the past could actually put you and other people in danger. Can you explain that a little bit? You know, the past is instructive. So if we don't learn from our mistakes by reflecting on them, then we will repeat them. So if we remember, we, oh, I remember that when I drank too much and drove, I got a DUI and that cost me and my family a year's worth of driving and income. I better remember that that's not a good idea, right? Not to shame you or to be, or I remember when I went on a business trip and, you know, I got tempted by one of my coworkers and I better have better boundaries this time. So remembering the past mistake isn't meant to shame you or beat you up or make you feel like you're a loser. It's meant to instruct you on how to do better next time. So that's for the, for the person who sinned, the past is instructive that way. For the person who's the victim of a sinner, let's say that your father sexually abused your child. The past is instructive in that, hey, I've forgiven him, but I probably won't let him babysit my kids anymore. Right. right, And I hope you wouldn't, even if you did forgive him and honestly forgave him, I hope you would hold him accountable and have the consequences follow through with jail time or whatever needed to happen. But at the very minimum, I hope you would say the past is instructive. My father has a problem with children and I am not putting my children under his care or any of our other children or any of our family's children. I will have to tell what's happened so that no other child gets harmed by this person again right? And that's not being mean or vindictive. That's honoring other people's safety with a person who may have a problem, even if you've forgiven them. What are some practical responses to a spouse or a church leader who says you need to forgive and forget and remove consequences? Because it's such a common teaching in the church. Do you want to role play? We can. Okay. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'm a husband and I'll say, if you don't forgive me, God won't forgive you because it says don't judge or you'll be judged. Don't condemn or you'll be condemned. Forgive. And that's how you're forgiven. So if you don't forgive me, then you're not really a true believer. I have a lot to say here, both as Leslie Burnick and also role, role playing this, this uh, scene. So let me start with the role play. And this requires you as the person who's listening to this person, whether it's your husband or your pastor or your counselor to know your Bible. It really does require yeah. you to have a relationship with God because otherwise they're going to be the version of the Bible that you know. And so you're going to start to feel fear 
Like, oh my gosh, I've been condemning, I've been judging, and maybe you have. And so that might be instructive for you to say, you know what? You're right. It's not my place to condemn or judge. I'm a sinner just like you. And I agree. I need to forgive you. And I'm not quite there yet, or I have forgiven you. But I don't believe it's biblical for me to erase the consequences. Your consequences are your consequences. The Bible teaches, and this is where it's important for you, like Leslie Vernick, I'm speaking. This is important for you, listener, to know what your Bible says. Because even Satan used the Bible against Jesus in the garden. Remember when he was tempting him? Yeah. Doesn't the Bible say this? Doesn't the Bible say? And Jesus is saying, yeah, but the Bible also says this. And so it's important for you to know the context in which they're misusing some of this scripture. And when someone demands forgiveness and when someone demands you to erase consequences, they're not repentant, right? Because when someone is truly repentant, I don't demand God forgives me. I don't say, you owe me forgiveness. You died on the cross. What an arrogant thing to say, right? And so when someone is truly repentant, they don't require anything. They ask for forgiveness. They don't demand forgiveness. So let's go back to our role play for a minute. And I might say, you know, you're right. I, I, I shouldn't condemn and I'm not condemning you and I'm not judging you, but I am facing reality. And the reality, the facts are you have lied to me. You have cheated on me. This is more than once. Facts are you have spent too much money or you have whatever hit me and I can forgive you, but I don't trust you. And I can't be with you right now until you decide whether or not you want to be this kind of person, because I don't want to continue to live with a person who thinks it's okay to hit me when they're mad or cheat on me when they're lonely or whatever they do that that's not okay with me anymore. And so I'm not willing to continue this relationship like this. I will forgive you, but the consequences are our relationship is broken and my trust in you is broken. And if you have no intention or interest in fixing that or changing you, let me know because I can't continue to go on this way. And I think this is where a woman or a victim of someone who's been treacherous against you has to really do your own work. Because for so long, we as women have been told to just accommodate, to go the extra mile, to be the bigger person, to do what they want. But I would caution that because when you give in to a bully, what you're actually doing is enabling the bully to continue to bully. And that's not, that's not good for you, for sure. It's not good for your children, but it's not good for them. When you enable someone to continue to stay blind to their sin, or you enable someone to continue to be irresponsible or lazy or selfish or greedy, because you have no consequences for that. Just picture your children. If you enable them to sleep late and not do their homework and you do their homework for them, because they say, well, mom, you're supposed to be the good mom. I just can't do this. You have to do it for me. And you do that. You're, you're robbing them of the opportunity to learn and grow through consequences like an F on their report card or a demerit from their teacher. And you're robbing them of the opportunity to learn. Life doesn't go this way. People don't rescue you out of your messes. You have consequences and those painful consequences teach you lessons. And so God isn't asking us to erase someone's consequences. And a really good example of this is in Psalm 51, when David sinned against Bathsheba and her husband by sexually abusing Bathsheba and killing her husband and the child that she conceived in that rape died. And and David was repentant, truly. I believe he was repentant. And yet the child died. God forgave him and the child died. Hmm. And the consequences on David's household 
continued and his household began to deteriorate. He was forgiven, but the consequences didn't go away. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the big difference here is maybe that definition of forgiveness. So many people, church leaders, those we're in relationship with think forgiveness means you don't talk about it anymore. It's in the past, forget about it. And 70 times seven, you have to keep doing that. And that's a wrong definition of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. A real definition of forgiveness, if I'm hearing you right, is what's happening in your heart so that you're not growing bitter. It's not that you have to erase consequences. So what does biblical forgiveness look like as the person who needs to forgive? So here's the best example or word picture I can create that will help you. Let's say that a good friend or a family member said to me, Leslie, I'm in real trouble and I really need your help. And can I borrow $10,000? I am in debt and you know I don't have the money to pay it off and I will pay you back. Let's say that I have a heart of compassion and I think, well, this will cost me, but I trust this person to pay me back. And we agree that they'll pay me back $100 a month for the next 10 years or however long it's going to be. And I write a check for $10,000 and I give it to them. And I get a check for $100 one month and then I get nothing after that. And week two or month two, month three, month four, I'm starting to get like upset. Like, where's my money? And so I go talk to that person and said, hey, you know, you borrowed $10,000 and you said you were going to pay me $100 a month and I only got one payment and I haven't gotten any payments. I know, but you know, I'm just so broke right now and I just don't have the money and you know, you've got money and you'll understand. And I'm like, this doesn't sit well with me, right? I'm starting to get a little angry. I'm starting to get a little hurt. You promised me and now you're not keeping your promise. And $10,000 is $10,000. I could have used that for something else. And then I see you taking your kids on a vacation to Disneyland in a year from now. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you have money. You're choosing to buy this. You're choosing to spend it for furniture. You went on a trip. Where's my $100? And I may not say that all out loud, but believe me, I'm saying it inside, right? Yeah, you're thinking it. And I'm getting angrier and I'm getting angrier and I'm getting bitter and I'm getting worked up. And I'm feeling like I don't want to see this person anymore. And, you know, I'm, you know, upset. And so what am I going to do with all that? What am I going to do with all that? I can't, I can't make them pay me back, right? I can't force them to do what they said they would do. I can't force them to honor their promise. Same as in a marriage, you can't make someone do something that they aren't willing to do. I can nag them, I can remind them, I can tell them, I can guilt trip them, I can do all that. And I've done all that. They're still not paying me. So what's my option? I have two options. I can stay angry and bitter, or I can forgive the debt. What does that look like? I can say to myself, I'm not going to say to them, I'm going to accept what they did to me. They lied to me and they took $10,000 of my money to spend it on what they wanted to spend it on. And they don't really care enough about me to honor their promise. And I do not want to live the rest of my life bitter and angry and resentful about what they did to me. So I am going to cancel the debt. I'm not going to expect repayment. I'm not going to you know, remind them anymore. Now, if they come in a year from now and say, here's the money, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to say, oh, it was canceled. Yeah, exactly. Right. But, but I'm not going to expect it anymore because it's just driving me crazy. So forgiveness is on my side so that I can be free to love and interact with them, maybe at a family dinner and not bring it up to them again, not throw it in their face again. 
Now, if they come to me a year from now and say, hey, Leslie, I'm in debt. I need $10,000. Can I, I'm going to say no. It's a hard no. Yeah. A hard no. I have boundaries. I'm not going to be taken advantage of again. So this is that 70 times seven. I think sometimes, you know, if you let yourself be abused over and over again, that's on you, right? Right. That's something that, you, you know, yes, you do have to forgive, but you don't have to let yourself be in that position. And so this is where I think forgiveness gets really mixed up with boundaries. You know, for me to have boundaries and saying, this is what I will do. I want to be a generous person. I will trust you and lend you $10,000. I have $10,000 in the bank. I can afford to do that with you. But if you hurt me in that trust, I'm not going to continue to trust you. And I'm not going to continue to be foolish with my resources to enable you to be irresponsible and selfish. Right now, had they needed $10,000 for cancer treatment and they borrowed the $10,000 and they didn't ever go back to work and they didn't have the means to repay and they needed more money for cancer treatment and I had money, I could still do that. Right. right? But it's a whole different picture. It's a whole different picture. And so I think if the person is repentant and there's real reasons why they can't make restitution, there's a different picture there than if there's a selfish entitlement. I'm entitled to borrow money from you and you shouldn't expect me to pay you back or make any restitution or do any work to rebuild your trust. If one of my coworkers cheated me out of things, I would forgive them, but I wouldn't let them work for me anymore, right? Right. There are consequences to someone's sin. And I don't think marriage erases consequences. Adultery, Jesus says, adultery is a serious sin. Consequences are, it breaks apart trust, unfaithfulness of any kind. Adultery in the Bible is a symbol word. It's a metaphor for unfaithfulness. God divorced Israel because of adultery. Well, Israel didn't literally commit physical sexual immorality with another country. That's not possible, but they brought in idol worship and God used the word adultery as a symbol of you are unfaithful and our relationship is broken. And so in marriage, adultery is the symbol of unfaithfulness. And when you are chronically unfaithful to your marriage vows, and it doesn't necessarily mean you've had intercourse with another woman, but you are chronically unfaithful to your marriage vows to love, honor, cherish, protect, provide, to be honest, to be responsible. Um, Those are serious breaches. And so that may result in a breakdown of the marital trust, the marital bond, and those consequences may be the marriage dies. Can you still forgive that person? Yeah. Someone kills my kid in a stupid accident or on purpose. I still have to decide whether I'm going to be bitter and angry at that person or I'm going to forgive them. But I might not ever have a relationship with that person. It's funny because there are these little things you talk about that can really tie people up. Little things that they can't seem to forgive. And then you talk about something like if somebody kills your kid on accident, I just read a news story the other day about a young teenager and he was backing up in the driveway and completely accidentally ran over two-year-old relative Mm -hmm. and that baby's gone. Those are huge things to forgive. So you could understand where that would be a real struggle and it would probably take a lot of time to work through forgiveness for something so major. Why do you think we struggle with these little offenses, whether it be in a marriage or in another relationship, why is forgiving so hard? You know, I think it is hard for some of us. And the Bible does tell us, don't be easily offended. Don't let yourself be easily offended. And I think that 
judgmental attitude, like, how could you do that? What's wrong with you? Why would you act that way? As if we are never a sinner. We never say something stupid or do something irresponsible or careless and accidentally or even on purpose harm someone. I remember, I mean, here would be an example of an of a thing that I did that I did it out of selfishness. I was at a professional meeting and one of my colleagues asked if we could have lunch together. And I said, yes. And then I ran into a, another professional colleague of mine, um, Diane Langberg, who's one of my superstar, you know, I admire her and we've been friends for 20 years and I hadn't talked to her for a long time. And I said, oh, Diane, so good to see you. And she goes, oh, let's have lunch. And I said, okay. And I canceled my lunch with my other colleague because I wanted to have lunch with Diane. And and then I'm sitting there in the lunch place having lunch with Diane. Oh, no. And I see that person over there eating alone. I felt horrible, oh, horrible, no. right? Because it was just selfishness. I should have just invited that person to come with us, right? Right. But I wanted her all to myself and I just wanted to catch up on our stuff. And and it was a selfish gesture and he forgave me. And but my point is we do do selfish things, we do careless things, we say wrong things. And and that's why God says to forgive people. Don't keep, easily keep a record of wrongs. So I think there's these moments where we feel offended, like, and, and sometimes we don't even forgive ourselves for making stupid mistakes. Like we say, you know, how could I have done such a thing? What's wrong with me? Nothing. You're an infallible, broken, sinful human being that makes mistakes and doesn't do everything right and is going to disappoint people and can't make everybody happy all of the time. And that isn't even a sin. But sometimes people can't even forgive us for being human. Like, no, mom, I can't come for Christmas this year. And a mom would be resentful about that, right? And so I think this is where we need to learn to be generous with forgiveness and have good boundaries with people who trample on our grace and our generosity and our goodness. Not that we take back our generosity and feel resentful and angry and hard-hearted. We still don't want to let that impact us in a negative way on our character, but we may have to have better boundaries to say, hey, I'm not giving to you when you aren't doing for yourself in these areas. So going back to your example with the lunch, you went to that person and asked for forgiveness. Is that right? I did. Isn't that a big part of forgiving? is having that person recognize what they've done and apologize and, or is it not? Yes and no. So I, I went to my colleague and I said, I am so embarrassed for myself on how selfish I was. And I am so sorry. And I hope you forgive me. And that of course he did. And we were still good colleagues and good friends after that. But let's say I didn't do that. And let's say he's looking over at me thinking, what a, what a liar she is. And I resent her now. And he's struggling with bitterness toward me. I hope he would decide, I don't want to feel those feelings anymore. I forgive her, but I won't trust her anymore. Yeah. Right. I don't trust her. So it does break down the relationship when the person isn't repentant, even in a casual professional friendship like that, it would, he, we wouldn't have the same level of friendship that we had if I hadn't gone to him and asked his forgiveness and told him I was sorry. And that's why it's so ridiculous in marriage, which is the most intimate and most sacred of relationship when someone does something to hurt you or harm you intentionally or unintentionally, that if they don't show care and remorse for the pain that they've caused, even if they didn't intend to, if I step on someone's toes or if I back into someone's car and I didn't mean to, 
I use this illustration with pastors in our church about this whole forgiveness thing, because this is the illustration I, I use for them. I say, so let's say in Sunday service, you know, someone backs into your car and they crunch your front radiators, water's coming out, you know, you hit your head on the steering wheel, even though the seatbelt was there, and you got a gash on your head and the person jumps out of their car and they said, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. And I'm so glad it's you, pastor, because love keeps no record of wrongs <laughs> and love doesn't remember the past and all the things that you've just said, Julie, all the verses that you've used. So thanks, pastor. And I'll see you next week. And they jump in their car and they drive off. And you're sitting there with a broken car and a bloody head. Wow. Is that what God expects, both from the receiving end and from the sinner? No, no. He doesn't expect them to assume an entitlement attitude of forgiveness erases my responsibility to show care for the harm I've caused, right? So repentance says, oh, I'm so sorry, Pastor, and I hope you can forgive me. Give me your phone number, and I'm going to call my insurance and have them take care of your car. And if you need medical care, I will pay for that. And if you need a rental car, I will pay for that. I am so sorry I've inconvenienced you by my stupidity of pulling out without looking, right? We make amends for the damage we've caused. Yeah. We show concern for the pain that we've caused someone else, even if we didn't intend to do it. But if we've actually been reckless and we're driving too fast or we drank too much or we're in an argument with our spouse and we're not paying attention and we cause harm, that's even more something that we need to take a look at. And so to expect amnesty because you said, oh, you're supposed to forgive me as a Christian is not biblical and is actually enabling someone to continue to sin. And that's not good for them. And it's certainly not good for you. I think that's such a good word. Forgiveness does not equal amnesty. Mm -hmm. And if I'm understanding you right to kind of boil it down a little bit, forgiveness is easier if the person comes and makes amends and wants forgiveness and recognizes what they've done against you. But forgiving doesn't require that on your part. The forgiveness is really what you do internally. But forgiveness also means you're not erasing the consequences, especially if the other person doesn't recognize what they've done. They make a bunch of excuses and they're not really that sorry and they keep doing it. The past is still the present. Forgiveness doesn't require erasing those consequences. The forgiveness is really in your own heart. Would that right, be a good But I'm not going to hold a record of wrongs against you. I'm going to remember that you're not a trustworthy, safe person, right? The Bible says in Proverbs, for example, in Proverbs 25, I believe it says, putting confidence or trust in an unreliable person is stupid. It's not wise. It's like walking on a broken foot or chewing on a broken tooth. So the Bible doesn't require us to trust everyone. In Proverbs 31, it describes a good marriage. The Proverbs 31 woman is a strong woman. She's independent. She makes her own choices. She's not a dominated woman who's treated like a child by her husband. She's a resourceful, independent woman. And her husband puts his trust in her. And it says he trusts her to do him good, not harm all the days of his life. So in a good marriage, if we're talking about marriage, trust and safety, he trusts her not to be a hot babe in bed, he trusts her to do him good, not harm all the days of his life. And I think in a long-term friendship or marriage, that's the essence. If you can trust your partner not to do you harm, to do you good, not harm. And if they do do you harm, 
that they own that, they take responsibility for that, they're repentant of that, not that they feel entitled because you're my spouse, I'm allowed to harm you or I'm allowed to harm you and you have to give me amnesty. I'm allowed to repeatedly harm you and you have to give me amnesty because the Bible says so. The Bible doesn't say any such thing. I want to talk about one more aspect of forgiveness that I think we don't always think about that a lot of people really struggle with, and that is forgiving yourself. I just recently was part of a meeting with some of our private conquer group members, and a lot of ladies were posting about this, that they couldn't forgive themselves for marrying the wrong person, for making wrong decisions, and a lot of the if onlys, and they really, really struggled with forgiving themselves. Talk about that for a minute, if you could. Yeah, I think that's a deeper heart issue. I don't think it's necessarily a forgiveness issue. They're labeling it that way. But what I really think it is, it's a pride issue that I shouldn't have been so stupid. I shouldn't have been so naive. I should have been able to make better choices. I should have known better. In other words, I shouldn't be an ordinary (laughs) struggling sinner like everybody else. Um, And so I think coming at yourself with humility, just like we don't judge other people, like how, I can't believe you did that. How could you be so stupid? That's a judgmental, prideful, like I wouldn't be that stupid. How could you be that stupid? God's telling us not to judge them. People are stupid sometimes. We don't know everything until we make that mistake. We don't know what we don't know. And so to be able to come at another person in humility and in gentleness, you know, you've sinned against me, you've harmed me. And them saying either their arrogance, that's too bad, or I didn't do anything wrong in their defensiveness or their humility of, yes, I'm right, you're right, and please forgive me. But I think the same thing is true for us. I think sometimes we have this unforgiving spirit or judgmental condemning spirit toward ourselves because we're not humble or we're we're not humble with ourselves and saying, of course, I didn't know enough. Of course, I made a foolish mistake. Of course, I was naive and didn't know better. Of course, I didn't listen to people because I thought I knew everything, you know, and be able to say, this is part of my broken humanity and accepting that, not being proud of it, but accepting that part of being human is making mistakes, is not knowing everything, is maybe trusting people too much without realizing the red flags or believing that as a good Christian, this is what I'm supposed to do until I wise up and learn, hey, a mature Christian has boundaries and it's okay. Even God has boundaries. And so to be able to understand that We might not have understood that in our 20s, but we start to understand in our 40s, sometimes our 60s, and then we feel mad at ourselves. Like at 20, we didn't know that. But if we think about ourselves in our maturity, we're not mad at ourselves at 10 that at two, we pooped our pants, right? We pooped our pants at two. We didn't know how to do it differently. And then we learned, right? And so if we could have a little bit more compassion for ourselves in the learning curve of maturity, um, we probably wouldn't have such a problem with forgiving ourselves for not knowing what we didn't know. We didn't know what we didn't know. And now we are learning from our mistakes and, and from life itself. And that's a good thing. What probably people have the hardest time is when they keep making the same stupid mistake over and over again. And those who do that usually don't hate themselves. They blame everyone else. Right. Um, right. And so it's, it's those of us who hate that we made even one mistake or hate that we even did one thing that resulted in a failure. Um, we're like, I think that's more of like, 
how could I have done such a thing? How could I have done such a thing is because this is part of the learning curve. Like how many times did you fall down when you started to walk? Lots of times. And even though you know how to walk really well, I still fall down sometimes. I still trip on a crack or I trip over my own feet or I, you know, didn't take a step right. And I get I, my I slipped down the stairs carrying some of my precious Christmas figurines and they were broken. Yeah. <laughs> it was really hard. <laughs> yeah. But but that's our humanity, right? Even though we know how to walk really well, we still make mistakes. And so I think if we can accept that, we don't have to forgive ourselves for that. Like I don't forgive myself because I'm human. I just accept that I'm human and I'm going to do human things sometimes. And that includes messing up. And if we can accept that without self-hatred, then there isn't a need for self-forgiveness. There's a need for self-compassion, which is really hard for us to give ourselves as women and as Christians to have compassion for our own weaknesses and our own failures, not to enable it, but just to learn from it and grow from it. Leslie, you've given us so much to think about today in the area of forgiveness. And I think a real challenge to learn our Bible so that we can respond to those people who have these favorite scriptures that they want to quote in order to try to gain amnesty. So thank you. Yeah. And I think in addition to knowing your Bible, because there's lots of people who know their Bible really well and still misuse it. True. Um, But I think if you know the heart of God and you see how Jesus talked to people uh, and talked with people, he didn't talk like that to them. He didn't say, this is what you need to do. (laughs) That's not how Jesus approached people. And so when people approach you that way with this arrogant, I know better than you, you better do it this way or you're condemned to hell. um, That's not who God's heart is. God always invites. He doesn't demand. And so when someone demands you forgive them, I would have a big red flag up there saying, you know, technically they might be right, but spiritually they're really off because you don't demand forgiveness. You ask for forgiveness and um, you don't try to convict someone of their sin when you're the one who's guilty of sinning against them. And so I think it gets all twisted that way. So let me pray that we would just have wisdom and clarity in what the Bible really says in God's heart for relationships. Lord, we just thank you for these podcasts that we can talk about real relationship truth unfiltered, that we can understand what you mean by he trusts her to do him good, not harm all the days of his life. And that's what it takes to create a long-term relationship. That when we break trust, it breaks the very fundamental glue that holds a couple together. And if that's not repaired, the relationship will die, even if they stay legally married. Lord, help us to be honest with how things really work and how you set them up to work. And there is no amnesty in life. If we trash our health, we're probably going to get sick and die earlier than if we don't trash our health. If we drive recklessly, we're probably going to be in an accident or cause an accident. The Bible tells us what we sow, we reap. And that isn't necessarily meant as punishment. It's meant to wake us up to reality that we can't live reckless and not pay a cost. And so when we're asking victims to erase the consequences out of a spiritual principle of forgiveness, Lord, we're teaching an error. And I just pray that people would forgive, that they would want to be free of bitterness and resentment. And they would also learn to be strong and have good boundaries against manipulators and oppressors who try to control others by misusing the scripture. Lord, help us to be wise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Leslie. 
We hope you've enjoyed season one of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. We'll be back again in January with a new lineup of powerful topics and guests who will help you navigate the challenge of destructive relationships. In the meantime, please go to leslievernick.com for more resources and be sure to follow her on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, may God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.